everybody. This is Sarah Longwell. I am here with my brilliant friend, Benjamin Wittes. We are hanging out behind the log pile and ready to talk about episodes 11 and 12 of The French Village. Minute, it's ben Nazis Wittes. who are hanging out behind the log pile. Not Nazis and gendarme and evil French police. I want to be in the house. It's true. It's true that the bad guys are... Or behind the log pile. You just, like, you just like identified us as like some of the worst people in the world. I want to be holed up in the house with the, you know, the newfound alliance of the communists and the Gaullists and the French villagers uh, and the Jews. That's That's the company I want to keep. Yeah, that's all fair. I think, you know, part of it is that for these two episodes, we as the audience spend a lot of time behind the log pile, <laughs> which is what made me think of that as a as a, as a little intro there. But you're right. Um, those are the bad guys are all behind the log pile. Uh, so here's what I realized when I was watching these two episodes. Uh, I bailed uh, on on the, the podcast last week because I was on vacation. I had fully intended... Uh, that I was going to be able to make it happen, but I was in the Great Smoky Mountains and I just couldn't couldn't get good enough uh, Wi-Fi or time, whatever. But I realized watching this episode that we did kind of leave people hanging because these are these are a banger couple of episodes. It's a banger uh, with couple. a ton to unpack. It's a banger couple of episodes, and I also want to say, speaking of the true commitment of our audience to this show. Um, I uh, went into Brookings for the first time in a while, and the package with my French resistance documents uh, that you referred to was in fact there. And that package of material with my forged Vichy France uh, identity card, transit pass, I got the Vichy flag, um, it's pretty awesome. Um, and I just want to say to the person uh, who... I don't think we named, uh, uh, but thank you. And, uh, you know, when they come for me, I will be well protected. <laughs> I mean, I have this stuff all up all over my office. It's it's so fun. Uh, I, I do. I would like that person because you sent it to us in the mail. I would like that person to maybe send us an email and tell us, like, do you own a printing? Like, how did you how are you able to print a replica or maybe Ben, you know. Was there, no, there- I have no. I have no idea. They seem gorgeously forged. Um, I I actually have a different idea, which is if the uh, forger of these documents wants to come on the show next week and talk about them, uh, I think that would be um, uh, really a great thing. And so, you know, shoot one of us an email. Uh, uh, um, Mr. Document Forger, and we will totally uh, devote a little part of the show to talking about forged Vichy documents. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, okay, so we are in uh, the the season three finale here, uh, which among uh, other cliffhangers is going to be whether or not we get picked up for season four uh, here at the French Village podcast. But uh, I, I, I'm excited to jump into these two episodes with you, Ben, except I will say one of the things that's different about these two episodes is that they're pretty contained, right? There's like a very specific piece of action that is driving most of what's happening. And so we do spend most of our time with uh, the the folks who are going to be part of the, the, the new resistance sit down. 
uh, and with all of the sort of bad guys who are trying to, they they have you know, Cremieux has led them to uh, to the resistance, and so all of the the way that the scenes are set up is basically um, Marchetti and Servier. Uh, they're all, and it starts out with really Marchetti and kind of his team. They're behind this log pile, uh, looking down at the house, and they know they're they're waiting them out uh, because they know that um, uh, that that they're going to lead them to more resistance members. And Marchetti is in search of a big score in capturing all of them. Um, but uh, one of the things that happens early in the episode that kind of kicks things off is that Marchetti is talking to Cremieux. He's sending him back to meet with his old comrades to try to, um, you know, get things moving. And they run into Rita. Rita shows up to talk to Marchetti. She has found out, as we know from the last episodes, that uh, Marchetti has withheld information about her mother and, in fact, sent her mother uh, to her death. Although I'm not, not clear to me if she knows exactly that that last part, but she knows he's withheld the information about her mother. And so she goes to see him and sort of, she doesn't confront him with what she knows, but she, she asks him, you tell me if you knew something, right? You tell me. And he lies to her and she knows he's lying. And, uh, and she walks out and, uh, that is that was the thing that that ended it for Rita. What did you think, sort of, of 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 Rita and the fact that she's been in this the whole time? You know, she's been hanging out with Marchetti. She's accepted a whole bunch of things, but this is her breaking point. Well, so I I am very sympathetic to Rita. Um, I think that you know, unlike a bunch of other characters, she is. Single mind, she's single mindedly interested in protecting herself and her mother, um, but she's not doing it at anybody else's expense. She's not, you know, uh, you know, she's not ratting out other people, right? I mean, her mother, um, uh, uh, she gives up the forger, yeah. She, she's, um, she is. You know, other people are making compromises. Her only compromise is that she's sleeping with Mercati. Uh, and, um, you know, she's, she's, you know, who's clearly, she would not be, uh, you know, his mistress slash wife under any other circumstances in the world. But, um, uh, her only compromise is of herself and um and and she does this with the understanding that he's protecting her and that he's protecting her mother and he fails at protecting her mother but he she knows he's trying and the moment she realizes that not only is he not trying he he protected her at the expense of her mother. Um, she's just done and, um, and walks away without really a backward glance. He forces her to make some backward glances, uh, uh, including at the very end of the last episode, which we'll talk about, but 
you know, she is does not backtrack from that. There's there's no moment where she shows a, a second of sentimentalism or regret about their relationship. She is pregnant with his child, and he. Uh, actually reminds her about that and says, and she has, it's like her best line. Yeah, but you'll never see him. So is it, does it really matter? Um, uh, And I, I think she's a a strangely admirable character actually. Okay. Well, you, you've always liked Rita a little bit more than I do. Um, You know, I, I I don't, it's hard. It's, I, I, it's hard to, I I don't want to judge her too much, uh, but she is, she is sleeping with and was, I get semi, I mean, had real feelings for, um, one of the worst humans on the planet. Um, second tier, but sure. Yeah. Um, he's a wannabe worst human. Yeah. I mean, and obviously people are going to do lots of things out of self-preservation, um, and to protect her and her family. Uh, and, and she is, she is good in these, she is a best version of herself. Um, in these two episodes, it, it, because she's being decisive, she is making a clear moral choice. Although she still lets Marchetti sort of save her um, and and you know engineer her escape to Switzerland, which of, of you know of course I guess you're going to take that opportunity if you get it. And and the the thing that she does that is the most potent is you know he's basically begging to come with her, um, but she is she is no longer interested in him because she sees him clearly now. Um, I could argue that that might've been something you could see earlier, but fine. Uh, so, and, and the other thing, I mean, part of what, uh, what is important about Rita in these two episodes is that she, you know, she has gone to see Larche, uh, previously against Marchetti's wishes. He doesn't know that she's seen Larche, although he discovers it, uh, in these episodes. And he has sent her, told her to go find, uh, Marie Germain, uh, which she does. Uh, and she has just seen Cremieux with Marchetti and she goes uh, to the house and the house is becoming this gathering place. Marie is, she's cooking a big soup because <laughs> that's all they eat there. They have soup. Um, and uh, and Cremieux has reintroduced himself upon Marchetti's orders. He is basically infiltrating back with his old uh, group and they are, they are slightly skeptical of where he's been, but continue to treat him more or less with trust um, uh, as he is sort of double-crossing them. Uh, they are waiting for Marcel Larche and uh, a couple other representatives from the communists. They have brought that guy who's like the more senior of their resistance team. They've got that, uh, that beautiful young man, Victor, there, the radio operator. Uh, and they're all coming together for this, what is going to be sort of this big regional meeting uh, that really only has like eight people in it, but is is the is the beginning of sort of a united front uh, of the resistance, of the communists and I guess the Gaullists, the, the, the bourgeois, yep. whatever, um, they're, they're coming together. And so that is their big important meeting. And of course, they're under surveillance. Um, and so the entire both episodes just are freighted with the tension of the fact that we know that they're being surveilled um, behind the log pile, which let's talk about the log pile for just one second, because I have some skepticism and I remembered this from watching it the first time. So they're behind these logs that are kind of far from 
the farm, I guess. They're, they're, they're far enough away that nobody knows. But, like, at some point, like, throughout these episodes, like, everybody's behind the log pile. Like, the there's, like, a whole unit of gendarmes. There's Servier. And everyone keeps, like, showing up. And I presume they're driving. And it just and, and seems to me. And the SS at was, some point shows up. The SS are there. Um, it's just, like, uh, there's, like, 40 people. And I just am, like, semi-skeptic. Coming and going at random. And it seems strange to me that they're organizing this super double secret meeting. And yet they've got, you know, this, this massive group of people is just hanging out like a hundred yards away. So it's never clear exactly how far it is away. It's not really, I mean, we, we were jokingly calling it a log pile, but it's, it's actually harvested timber, right? So it's like, it's a, rather large pile. Uh, it, it's basically a giant wall of wood. Um, and it seems to be significantly closer to the road than the, than the farmhouse. So I think you can have to imagine it as like 100, 200 yards away. And they are, after all, hiding in the house. They're not, um, uh, they're not, you know, they're not out there for a vacation. They're trying to spend as little time outdoors as possible because they don't want to be seen. And so I, I don't know. It didn't it didn't bother me as a as a matter of realism. They you know, they're I, I guess I thought of the log pile as the closest place you could mass forces without risk of being caught and they do have to use binoculars to 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 see the house and to identify people who are coming in or out so i they're not it's not like you know the log pile at, at my house which is like you walk outdoors and there's a pile of firewood yeah okay yeah i mean it's big enough for cover i don't know i just but that's fine. It didn't just, you know, you you were able to willingly suspend your disbelief. Or you didn't even have like disbelief. Rita. I had. Like, I, yeah, I, I just, right. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know, that's right. it worked for me. All right. Um, so, well, so Rita, uh, she goes to see Marie. And when she comes in, uh, Marie is sort of like, who is this person? She doesn't know her. Uh, but she has her, she sort of begs her to help her get to Switzerland. Uh, Rita begs Marie. And Marie is just, yeah, she's so helpful. She just, I mean, I, you could see in, in a different instance her saying, I don't know you, go away. I'm about to have this big meeting. But instead she she brings her inside and tells her she's going to have to go wait. But upon coming inside, she gets a look at Cremieux. And she they made like solid eye contact back at the police station. She knows he was just with Marchetti. She calls Marie back outside and says, I saw that guy with Marchetti. And that that's the moment that they realize Cremieux has given them up. Yes. And it's also a really important moment for um, uh, you think of like from an OPSEC point of view, bringing in uh, an outsider who knocks on your door is a super dangerous thing to do. In this case, she say, you know, Rita bringing in Rita saves a bunch of their lives because uh, she becomes the source of information that they have a Cremieux problem, which, you know, they had not thought enough about 
beforehand. And this leads to the unraveling of, of okay, Cremieux gives them up. Why did he give them up? Because he's, arrest, he's arrested um, and arrested because he... Um, uh, uh, and and is pressured with his wife and child, who are of course already dead, but he doesn't know that. Um, why was he arrested? He was arrested because Raúl wanted to make out with Elian, right, and lied to his mother and said he wasn't going to meet her, but then goes and meets with her, gets followed, um, and so they are actually able to reconstruct the operational failures uh, of their own crew all because all because Rita shows up at the door. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did. I did. As I was watching Marie um, and, and thinking about her as this sort of burgeoning resistance intelligence uh, member, I was thinking like there are a lot of teachable moments for you here. A lot of things to learn from uh, about what not to do. But yes, we should it, We should say this very plainly. This is all Raul's fault. Uh, and uh, I don't know how many teenagers we have listening to the program, but... Don't uh, make out. Just, That's the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Abstention. Uh, I mean, Abstinent. you know... <laughs> they do this thing and they do this thing in some of the early episodes where they really romanticize, you know, this idea of your first kiss and he's going to show up. And I, there is just the part of me that's like, really, dude, like a kiss, like that was so important uh, that you were willing to risk everyone, you know, um, you know, leave it to a teenager to not not recognize the stakes appropriately, despite the fact that they have been very much explained to him. And also not really clear that like you know, he and Elion, not the passion of the century, clearly. Um, and <laughs> yeah. so it's like, you know, it's, it, it didn't look like a really good kiss, I just have to say. And and speaking of Elion, I know that, if, well, this is, I don't know if we talked about this in these last episodes, but there is that moment where he does it. And it's like, he's like this, you know, bumbling dude who has like three words to say. And he kind of like walks up, stands in front of her. They exchange like four words they kiss, and then he walks away. Yeah, <laughs> it's and, just like, and for this, the ra- Victor, the radio operator, Cremieux, um, uh, um, uh, who else? The uh, uh, Vincent. Uh, these all they all get killed for one lousy kiss. And Raoul takes a bullet too. Yeah, right? he gets in, injured. He's in rough shape. He's arrested and he's been shot. I mean, it's not worth it teenagers don't don't kiss each other (laughs) (laughs) uh so so speaking of elian uh whatever she also has a role in this though because she comes to the school where barrio uh and lucienne are i don't know they've got the kids playing a game of dodgeball or something uh and uh, she comes and is, is pulling her younger brother out of school because they've got to leave uh, because she has, you know, now she's been a police informant. And um, and so it looks like they're packing up to go. And she ends up kind of telling Barrio uh, enough about this that he is made aware uh, that the operation, the meeting, which he knows is going on, is in jeopardy. And so he hops on his bike to try to go warn them. Um, but he is, 
you know, he he is he's he's got his head on straight. And so as he rides his bike up, he's checking he's out the surroundings. Cat. Yeah, he's he sees that they're they've got, you know, scouts up in trees, that the whole thing's being watched. And so, you know, where do you go when you need to send out a signal to warn people? You go to Madame Berta's uh what do we call? I keep wanting to say whorehouse, but I know that's not the right. That's not a good term. I think, I think we call, we call it the, the best little whorehouse in Villeneuve. <laughs> he goes to the brothel, uh, Madame Berta's, and uh, just says, "Like, can you get a message to these guys?" Um, and they are able to get it to um, some of the communists, but not uh, not Marcel Larcher. Uh, so he is the only one he, he, his, he, the other people don't show up. He doesn't know why. So he comes anyway and it's, it's, he's on his own, but the, the powers that be the Marchettis of the world, um, and, and Serbia and everybody like these, this is exciting, right? Cause you've got now Marcel Larcher, uh, Maria Germain, that radio operator that they've spent multiple episodes looking for. They're all in one place. But the, the problem is, is that. Marchetti has seen Rita come up on her bike. When Marie sh- uh, when when Rita showed up, Marchetti saw her. So he now has to figure out. So like everything with Marchetti, it went from something where he was ready uh, to, you know, he didn't really care what happened to all these people. He wanted the big score to get all of them. But now he's afraid for Rita's life. And so he begins to act and approach the whole situation differently. Um, and when he realizes that what the gendarmes want to do is basically just shell the place and just kill everybody inside uh, because, you know, this, this revolting guy, Chastanier, uh, who wants to be mayor, uh, has convinced Servier that this is what they should do. Uh, and he's looking for sort of like maximum, maximum bloodletting um, from, from these, what he calls uh, anti-nationals. Though I would argue that they're pro-nationals. Um, he Marchetti realizes that they're just going to attack the house and blow the whole thing up. They've got mortars, they've got big guns. And so uh, what does he do? He goes to Mueller uh, to tell them about the operation, knowing that Mueller, as a, an, a, a good old-fashioned uh, interrogator, isn't going to want to just kill all these guys. He's going to want to talk to them first, Right. Yeah, so it's this is I love this because the scriptwriters really had some fun here, because you know you're fucked when you're going to the SS as the most humane solution to a problem, right? <laughs> um, and you know he's like, I know how to prevent a massacre. I'll get the SS torturers involved, and um, and the SS torturers will not want a massacre because then they can't torture people for information. Um, and so I can slow down the whole thing by getting Heinrich Müller involved. And of course, Marketi has a certain fascination for Müller, who is everything he wants to be when he grows up. And um, But meanwhile, Müller is in bed with Hortense, who... Um, uh, in a weird subplot, uh, has now abandoned Danielle Larcher once again for Mueller, 
having had a good couple episodes where she is, um, you know, she's a, where she shows some sort of spark of redemption uh, or at least interest in that, she is now uh, back in the SS bed. And so I love this sequence of scenes. It's like so rich with irony. You know, he's, he's, Marquette is irate behind the woodpile because the gendarmes are about to massacre the resistance folks. And so his solution to the problem is to roust Muller out of bed with Hortense to appeal to his torturer's instinct to take people alive. And I just think this is, this is seriously great ironic script writing. It is. And it also, I mean, part of what I, uh, this is like one of those, uh, these, the kinds of episodes, right. Where it's like all of our main characters sort of uh, bumping up against one another. Right. So that they're all semi in the same place, or at least contributing to the actions. Like even Barrio, who's not in there is still related to the central plot. Um, but I, I will say uh, this, the Hortense thing. So going back to our main disagreement, uh, from two weeks ago, which is the dinner that Mueller has with Hortense, where he tells her this grotesque story um, about how he killed uh, these Jewish families in the woods, just was like mowing people down, massacring them, um, and how they didn't really fight back. And you interpreted that as him saying to her, uh, you're like that. You will bend to my will. You will do the thing that you don't even want to do, which I think is a really interesting interpretation. What was different from my interpretation was, which was, I know you, Hortense, you're just as evil as I am. And me telling you about this power that I have, the the fact that I'll destroy people will get you hot uh, and will make you want to come back to me. What do you think after seeing uh, that the net effect of their dinner, she comes home, after that, she goes to Daniel. They spend one night together. Daniel immediately cuts things off with Sarah uh, in order to try to make it work with Hortense. And Hortense's response after that one night is to say, I'm out of here. Like she just it, – because it is funny, right? She's They're like having their breakfast or something and she just says, Daniel, I'm leaving for good. Uh, what did you What did you make of, of her motivation to do this? So it's – it's interestingly underdeveloped, right? She does it. There is no why conversation. There's no part where she explains it to somebody else. And um, I think it's basically consistent with both of our um, interpretations, right? He, he, he is so, like, to, f- to frame it in, in your terms – he has, you know, shown her how, told her how evil he is and, and said, you know, basically, don't you want to be on Team Dark Side? Um, and she, you know, after thinking about it and after, you know, one night of boring, decent people sex with Danielle, she's um, like, all right, I'm, I'm, you know, okay, Darth, I'm, I'm coming over to the dark side for good this time. Um, but I can also read it in the way that I read the original conversation, which is, you know, I am, I, I am, 
going to so completely dominate you that, you know, I hand you the shovel to dig your grave and you just go do it. And I'm, I'm, you know, going to, uh, uh, you know, have this horribly abusive dinner with you, uh, and then, uh, tell you you're going to come back, um, and smile at you when you storm out. And just like the, uh, man who I hand the shovel to and know he's going to dig the grave. I know that you're going to show up in my, uh, uh, in my bedroom and you're going to do it of your own volition because I've so completely, I've so completely got inside your head. And so she goes home and, you know, is relieved to be with Danielle uh, for a brief moment and then is so wrecked by this person that uh, she picks up and goes to him the next day or a few days later. And I can kind of read it either way. How, how did you understand it? So actually, so when I watched it, um, I thought to myself, boy, this this next move really works either with under either interpretation. Um that, that either way that you and I were reading this, the result would be the same, right? She was either either so kind of like turned on by this and then went back to Daniel for this kind of safety and realized like, ugh, you know, this isn't this isn't me. Um, I need something more exciting and I want this this horrible person. Um, or uh, or as you say, it's just him understanding uh, that that she's so self-destructive. Um, or so incapable of, of, I don't know, the right kind of self-preservation that she was going to find her way to him. So I was, I, I watched it thinking like, eh, this could either, either one of these things would still lead to this outcome. Um, Which maybe suggests that they're not that different from what, you know, when, when we first talked about it, we, we thought of them as opposite and conflicting interpretations and we actually argued about it but maybe maybe the actual explanation is that that they're not really that different one is you're turned on by my degree of evil um and the other and by my pride in it and the other is um you're as wrecked as you're you're as wrecked as the man who I handled handed a shovel to and you can't stay away and you know it and I know it and um by the way uh you're turned on by it and they're actually yeah. really very similar they are I guess I guess the the only difference I guess I could try to identify between the two is uh is that one she has more agency maybe in, in my interpretation or like it is, there is more of her badness in it versus uh, I think, I think that's one of the reasons I argued with you is because I felt like the interpretation you were giving kind of like let her off the hook a little bit, you know, like she was just sort of broken and, uh, and, and it, but where versus, versus like the deeply evil part of her actually being sort of titillated by the whole thing. But I think you're right that they're not that different. And in any event, uh, she does this thing where she just tells Daniel she's gone, goes right to Mueller. He gives, this is because part of it is I was looking at his face when he sees her 
and the smile, I don't know. I don't, he seems maybe a little surprised that she's just shown up, but not, not completely, t- you know, not completely knocked out. Like he doesn't, the look on his face is not like, oh, I've been expecting you, but it is like, I'm not shocked to see you either, but I am happy to see you. I think that's right. I think he's delighted that he was right. Um, whether it's his right in the way that you meant or the way that I meant, or whether they're not very different. Um, but he's uh, a little bit surprised, right? And he's quite pleased with himself um, to be, to have been to have been right. And of course, he doesn't care about her one iota. So it's not that he's. Um, I mean, it hasn't been that long since he actually tortured her. Um, uh, so it's clearly not that he's, you know, pining for her, but he is definitely delighted to have at the conquest one way or another. Yeah. Now just uh, two, two little addendums to this particular storyline. One is as Hortense is leaving, Daniel says, which is, this is like my main critique of the show is like the extent to which children at some point play a big role and then they all just disappear and like no longer drive any plot. Uh, which you know, Daniel says, well, what about Tikiero? Uh, and she's just kind of like, oh, he's more yours than mine. Um, and so just if you recall, like the first season where Tikiero basically and her love for him basically drives every selfish bad action that she does. Like she like can't even be bothered with the idea of Tekiero at this point. Yes, which actually raises the question of whether she ever, right? Well, like whether, you know, w- w- when she first does the baby stealing thing, um, we assume it is because she is really wants to be a mother, right? And um, and we don't have any information about how evil she is at this point. But we assume that this is some unrequited, you know, she can't get pregnant or something. Um, and she, and then, you know, over time, her interest in the child becomes so instrumental. Um, and you know he's a, a, a he's a, a sort of vanity piece for her um and you actually wonder whether part of the point of it was more the theft than that she really wanted the child huh. uh that's funny i don't i i guess i still even upon second watching and knowing who she becomes uh i still I still read it the second time around as her really wanting, because this was one of the things that like in upon first watching, I was constantly like, I felt like she, it was a real um, switch. Like the person like, like we see her personality change. Although you just, you raise a really good point, which is presumably this is who she is. And so there's reason now to go back and question her motives for everything that she's done that is like on the the decent side um, where, where it seems like her morality kicks in. Um, but I don't I mean, you got to go I, back and revisit it. Like when she's stealing that baby, which granted is portrayed as, but like, as you know, she really, really wants a baby and, 
uh, the baby's mother's dead. And, you know, all of that is, um, we now know that this is a person who um, is capable of, you know, getting her brother-in-law caught by the Nazis she's sleeping with, uh, who's, you know, capable of humiliating her husband the way she does, whose uh, idea of an art exhibition is entirely uh, composed of self-portraits. I mean, this is a very diseased human being. And it makes me go back and say, well, wait a minute, Why'd she really want this baby? Yeah, yeah, and and if and and the, look, you, it can be it can be both things. I mean, in those early episodes around the baby, the, there is you as a viewer want the baby to stay with her. Like you definitely want her to, ha- and not like what look like the very mean nuns who are going to put the baby in an orphanage. Um, but the way that that story unfolds ultimately is her being willing to do, you know, when the parents show up again, um, you know, her being willing to keep certain details from Daniel to make a deal with Marchetti to do all kinds of things. So the deviousness does kind of unfold um, and the, and the way that she, she acts, but, but she gets just exponentially worse uh, as the series goes on. Uh, But speaking of Daniel, the other point, the other just piece I wanted to raise on this plot point uh, is that there's, Sarah doesn't get a lot of, a lot of airtime in these two episodes, but she, she gets one very sort of key scene where I love uh, this scene. And, <laughs> I, and it, it, I felt like it really vindicates my, uh, my admiration for and enthusiasm for Sarah Meyer as a character. I mean, I, I, I think about you now oftentimes when I see her, cause I know you like her so much, but she does like her, her Daniel basically you know comes and apologizes and they're all leaving the house uh, together. They've got to leave and go to um, Bassignon. Uh, and Daniel says, you know, he apologizes and she says, you're only saying that cause she's gone now. Uh, and she says, I feel like I'm a cheap wartime substitute. Uh, but, it's better, he, but, it, but it's better than that. Cause his first thing he says, do you forgive me? And she says, no, no. And she says it kind of <laughs> cheerfully. Um, and then she says, you only came back because she left you. And I feel like a cheap wartime substitute. And like, this is like, you know, all the, what we jokingly called goldfish energy of Lucienne, right? All the um, extorted sex from, from Rita, all the, like, this is like a young woman who is self-possessed enough that when she's having an affair with her boss, uh, who's on whose life, on, on whose good graces she, her life, depends really because she is a stateless Jew uh, who's out of touch, like has no, no, no idea what happened to her family. And yet she has the self-possession when he says, do you forgive me? To like, no bucko, you, you're too attracted to that evil woman. And um, like, I'm, and like, don't come running back to me when she leaves and pretend that like, it's all fine. I, I think it's like, it's, it's just this great moment for her. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, I I always liked Sarah. I don't know that I ever liked her quite as much as you did in part because I I never liked the affair with Daniel, but I do one of the things upon second watching that has become more clear to me, some of it driven by your affection for her is just that of all the characters in the show, the show itself is almost entirely about the moral ambiguities uh, for all of these people and uh, the the scales of complicity, et cetera, she has she possesses moral clarity um, oftentimes in a show where there's not much of that. Um, and so, you know, just like when she was in the jail with Daniel and she told him, "This is you. Like this is this is also this is because people like you collaborate." Um, and and she sort of catches him short by just telling him like the hard honest truth uh here too she she just she just set, calls it exactly like it is and also makes a decision that um unlike a lot of other people is not necessarily in her mortal interest uh although Daniel's a much better actor than a lot of other people and by actor I don't mean his acting skills I mean um as a person he's unlikely to leverage it the same way like a Marchetti would against Rita um, okay. So we have to, one other thing, um, one other sort of, it's not a side plot point cause it's connected, but as Marchetti is trying to track down Rita, he realizes that she has gone to see Larche. So he goes to see Larche, um, who of course continues to have Madame Morhange in his house, who is gravely, gravely ill. And Marchetti is in such a panic about finding finding Rita that he he pulls a gun on Sarah. He is sort of holding them hostage. He's trying to get information, I guess out of Morhange too, who's can barely speak. Uh, and who shows up? Were you excited to see him? I was. Um, I love De Caverne as a character. Uh, he's not the most lovable human being, actually, but he is a spectacular character and a very complicated and interesting character. And we still don't know why he and uh, Morhange broke up in Paris, but he's back. He's very fond of her. And, um, and she uh, wants to be put out of her misery. And, um, you know, she, um, I, I think these few scenes where, she is dying and wants a physician assist in that regard where Marquette shows up and there's some real confrontations between him and Larche and, uh, um, and De Caverne are, are, they're just great scenes. And these are, you know, these characters, all of them have been, really, really richly developed over three seasons now. And they're all extremely well-played characters. And so you have just a lot of opportunity. The screenwriters just have a lot of opportunity to, to have a huge amount going on with relatively few lines. And I, I think these scenes are just, just terrific. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, so Madame Morhange is one of, she's up really high up there on my list of favorite characters on the show. Um, I had sort of forgotten about she, she, so a lot of 
it's a it's a it's a brutal show with a lot of death and a lot of death among uh, relatively main characters, um, and a lot of them go quick. Uh, and so the fact that she has this sort of opportunity, it's not a it's not a monologue in the sense that she's saying something about life exactly, but she's she is giving this she tells this story, this thing that's clearly completely imprinted on her about uh, being in Drancy and the cruelty of the guards who found out that she was a school principal and so put her in with the children uh, who were just in the most squalid, um, you know, heartbreaking conditions. And I, she tells the story about this woman who came in who must have been arrested at, uh, at the opera because she's wearing a very beautiful gown and how this woman sort of strips off her gown to create um, – whether it's bandages or linens or something for the children, it doesn't quite, it feels like a, like a fantasy uh, or, or like, like actually she's talking about this, this kindness of this other woman. But my guess is that it's actually, it probably is her who was taking care of these children, who was, who was stripping herself bare in some way emotionally to, um, to give them some kind of, uh, some kind of, comfort. But I will say this is a show in which I almost, it, it's, it's, it's obviously brutal and hard to watch for all these reasons, but I don't cry very often. Like I'm not, because in some ways, because the show is so, um, it's not emotionally manipulative. Uh, it's not necessarily going for, uh, big music swells, crying scenes, you know, so you don't, this is one of the few times I really, um, got emotional was right before, was when she kind of tells the story as she's dying and De Caverne's there and Daniel's there. Um, in part just because it's the loss of one of the most purely good characters on the show. Um, and uh, I remember feeling this way the first time. It's just like, oh man, she's not going to be in this anymore. Um, and it was sad to see her go. Yeah, so I really... Um I think the question of whether that story is literal or metaphoric or both is a really interesting one. And, and I think the answer is both. Like she's, she's describing something she actually saw happen, but the reason the story is so powerful is that, you know, you have, you have this society, this very respectable figure and a school principal in a civil servant school principal in, you know, in 1940 in France is a very respectable position, right? It's like the woman in an evening gown. And then you start tearing off pieces of the, of the, you know, to use as, bed linen basically or to use as bandages and stripping away and stripping away in this very humiliating fashion until she's left in her underwear um for helping kids you know helping kids and then is mocked for being and it actually says and the guards mocked her because she was in her underwear um and of course, these are French guards. These are not Germans. Um, and so there's this sort of metaphorical element to it of a respectable person 
by which she clearly also means herself, who is, you know, stripped down to near nakedness and mocked by French people. Um, and, you know, and I think the, the, it's not, it's not that the, you know, the German occupiers did this to us, right? This is French people doing it to themselves. And, and I think there's, there's a, it's a very powerful, and she's, it's all intermixed with the fact that she's begging for death and she's actually persuaded Larche. I mean, this is the speech she's giving while the drugs he's giving her to kill her are starting to course through her veins. And, um, and I think there's a sort of metaphorical component of that too. Yeah. I mean, and this could be, overreading it but you know one of the things she says about the woman you know she says they're mocking her but that the woman i don't remember she says that the woman wasn't humiliated but she says she says that for her that the woman was hope and for the children the woman was hope and like that's all i was i was realizing that like that's how i feel when morhange is there um right whenever you, she's there you know that there's some responsible sort of morally centered human um and so, like, she's kind of hope on the show in a lot of ways, and you're and you're hoping for her, but it's it is ending as she's telling this story. Um, yeah, just it's like one of the most powerful um, scenes in the show. I thought. Then the other, just for the uh, the other reason too, is that you know, with the exception really of the time that, uh, and, and this is mostly true, I think, of the series, you are not present for a lot of the stuff that you normally see in the sort of Holocaust, like canon of art, um, right? Like you're just in this thing. Right. And it's, it's one of the things that I think makes the show watchable in the way that it is. Um, but she does project you with the exception of that time when they're the, they're in that, where they're in the school. Um, it's one of the reasons the first half of the season is so tough. Um, but the thing that she does with this sort of monologue is she just transports you out. Like, you know that these things are happening. Like, that that what you're following in the town might be what's happening in the town, but there is a place somewhere else where the most atrocious things are happening to people. And it does, like, it puts you in that for a little bit, um, which I think is something that when you you are periodically made aware of how bad things are elsewhere, it, can, it angers um the the moral stakes of the show that aren't like present on screen all the time. Yeah. Um it's it's a it's a it's really the only death speech we have had in the show. I mean when uh the radio operator dies he you know he and Marie talk about literature a little bit. But um but this is I, I mean, it, it it really reminds me a little bit of the the sort of the death of Mr. Kurtz in 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 Heart of Darkness, right? Where you know he goes out saying the horror, the horror, and somehow Trent, you know, in in this uh, this sort of hallucinatory state, is seeing all of. All, all of the horror of the 
you know, I, I guess it would be the Belgian Congo, but in this case, she's taking you inside a transport to Auschwitz. Um, and she's doing it through this, this very, this very acute story of this one woman and these children. Uh, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very powerful piece of acting and, and a very powerful piece of writing. Well, uh, speaking of losing people, so, uh, those, now that we've kind of hit a lot of, we get a bit of a body count toward the end. Yeah. So I think we should, so I'm glad we talked about a lot of that stuff in depth because I was, I was actually thinking when I was watching the show, I was like, so much of this is actually action that I wasn't, uh, I was like, how, how, how much can you talk about this? Cause there's ultimately what happens with the, you know, Mueller shows up behind the log pile, um, and they plan uh, – so you've got this tension where the people in the house, because of Rita and Crimea, uh, they know. They know that the Germans are out there. Um, they don't know how many, but they know that they're going to attack soon. And so they've got to devise a plan. Um, and uh, now you've got Mueller and Marchetti and you've got all the gendarmes um, and they all have different – uh, different things they'd like to see happen, right? The head of the gendarmes wants to uh, basically is buddies with Chassonier and they want to go in and just kill everybody. Marchetti's, you know, trying to figure out how to get Rita out of there. Uh, and Mueller wants to capture them alive so he can, uh, so he can interrogate them. Um, and so they're all kind of having these political fights behind the log pile for sort of dominance of the situation. Um, and in that time, they basically the the people in the house devise a plan, a good one. Uh, it seems to me. Um, but and of course, it's Marie. Marie always knows what to do. Um, and she says, "Well, we have got a car." And uh, although I will say, I'll just like to point out actually at this juncture that Marie needs a phone. Like if you're going to run the resistance. You know, the idea that you've got to send the messages through the whorehouse, like, like people have phones. Uh, Barrio has a phone, whatever. She should get a phone if she wants to leave the resistance. That would be helpful in this situation. But anyway, they do, there's a car, um, they've got a couple of guns and the cover of night. And so the escape that they plan is to have uh, Cremieux, who at this point has sort of understands that he has been lied to by Marchetti, that he has sold out his friends. Uh, and, you know, they've kicked him around a bit for being a traitor, like literally kicked him in the stomach for a while. Um, and uh, he he basically understands that he has to be the one to create the diversion and that that is certain death. Um, but he faces that without, he seems, I would say my, my take on how he, is that he knows that that's what he has to do. Like that yes, that's the also, cosmic debt he owes. And also that he's, he, um, he did this to save his family. And it turns out he was taken for a fool as a fool for, by, by Mercati. Uh, and, um, and he, 
you know, did not save his family. He got them all into trouble and one of them has to die to get them out of trouble. The least he can do is make it be him. And by the way, he doesn't really have much to live for anymore. Like, you know, once you've sold your soul to sell, say, even if it's to save your family, you still don't have a soul. And, you know, and so he's like, he's, he's pretty wrecked at this point. And, um, so this is something he can do. And then as he tries to do it, uh, uh, Raul insists on jumping in the car and getting shot too, which uh, was not what Marie had in mind. Yeah, Raul, you know, um, he's... Teenage angst. Teenage, don't, yeah. And, don't and, go <laughs> kissing people. And if you do and you get people in trouble as a result, you don't. that doesn't mean you need to jump in the car and get shot, Okay. Two two people don't need to die in the diversion, right? right. Like Only like one. like that's right. It's like you you do the, try to minimize that. So um, it's a kind of a youthful, uh, you know, what vainglorious something. You know, tried to be tried to have this valor of it, but it was mostly just stupid. Um, and he gets shot pretty much right away. Not to mention it it slows down their ability to. Uh, have the diversion because he's trying to jump in the car as opposed to Kremia being able to sort of draw them further out. Um, but while they're while Kremia's in the car trying to create this diversion, um, the others are sneaking out the back uh, in the dark in pairs. And so uh, you've got uh, Marcel Larche is with Rita. Uh, <laughs> uh, Marie is with uh, Vincent, the handsome radio operator. Uh, she, of course, is putting up a fight because she was supposed to be with Raul. Um, and so he has to kind of cold cock her and pick her up and carry her to get her out of there because she's not going to leave without her son, um, which I think was a good move on his part. Uh, and then uh, the other one is like the head the head um, resistance guy. Uh, and who's he with? Is there somebody else there or is that everybody? I think that's everybody. Oh, he was – yeah, he was supposed to be with Marie, and Marie was supposed to. Right, uh, Marie, or, Marie runs off to try to uh, to get to to prevent Raoul from going in, and ends up being dragged away by Vincent. But, that's right. And here so, we have. So they're all. Oh, sorry. Go, please go ahead. No, no, please. So, so they're all running through the woods now, trying to escape in different directions. Um, and there's a couple sort of very heroic moments um the 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 head of the resistance though is shot uh i forget his name but he's been in several episodes he kind of shows up uh victor. to negotiate things victor thank you um so he is killed in this cremu is killed raul is shot uh and then uh rita and marcel are you know deep in the woods but they're surrounded they can see they can see the the gendarmes coming from multiple directions with flashlights. And so to help Marcel get away, Rita just gives herself up, just sort of walks out, puts her hands up. And while they swarm her, Marcel is able to get away. Um, and I think that, uh, again, I can see why you sort of, you know, she, she, she's having a good couple of episodes here where she, she decides that, um, and she says it at one point, she's like, I'll die with you guys if I have to, rather than go back to Marchetti. Uh, like she, she, she has, she has made her moral break. Um, and, and so this, she's able to help. And this brings us to this fabulous last scene 
with which we should wrap. So I am in awe of this final scene where they are, she and Marchetti are hiking and over the hill into Switzerland. Uh, and he's trying to get her to Switzerland. Um, and she, and he's also begging her to let him come with her. And she is, of course, refusing. And I realized in this scene that this is a, an allusion, no pun intended, to the great uh, Jean Renoir film, Grand Illusion, um, which was made in 1937. And, you know, it's considered one of the great movies of all time. Um, it, and in the end of it, it is, it's a movie about a French POW prisoner escape from a German POW camp. And in the end of the movie, the two, two of the French prisoners of war who have escaped are racing across a field into Switzerland. And a, the German army sees them and raises the one of them raises a gun to shoot them and the other one says pushes the gun down and says don't shoot they're in switzerland and in this situation she is also trying to cross a field into switzerland and a german soldier picks up his gun and is going to shoot her and marketi says don't shoot. He doesn't say don't shoot, she's in Switzerland because she's not yet. Um, but he says don't shoot and then he shoots the guy to protect her. Um, and so to those who, uh, who, if you wanna like have a completely different view of the last moments of season three between, here's your homework assignment, watch, La Grande Illusion, um, uh, which is an extremely, it's, it's just a fabulous, fabulous movie from this period. And particularly watch the end of it. And then watch this last scene again. And you'll see it's a kind of homage to what Renoir did at the end of, at the end of this movie and the traditional interpretation of the end of Grand Illusion is that there was this kind of honor in the officer classes of the World War I armies. And Renoir is saying in sort of 37, 38, the next time there's a war between Germany and France, you're not going to see anything like this. They would take the shot at the person crossing into Switzerland, even if he was already there. And this is, of course, that scene where she's there, the German soldier is going to take the shot, and the evil French cop who she has rejected in his disgustingness is actually necessary to prevent her from getting shot. And it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting kind of meditation on what Renoir did in this movie that's set in this period of time, like, well, it was made in this period of time and set 20 years earlier.
I will watch it this weekend. I can't wait. Uh, okay. Well, with that, uh, we are we are through season three. I don't know about you, but I remember thinking when we decided to do this that it was going to take us a really long time. Um, we're, we're cruising we're through it. Cruising through, man. Season four next week. Um, sorry we about the renewed. week off. If we get renewed. Well, I'll talk to the powers that be. <laughs> uh, all right, everyone. Have a great weekend. And indeed. Take us home. Nous nous aimions bien tendrement. Hommes oh, t'aiment tous les amants. Et puis